Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue two of our Comics Bracket. This week, we will be discussing 2002's Road to Perdition, as well as 2014's Kingsman The Secret Service. These are both father-son movies, basically. Watch them with your dads. Feel some feelings. Watch them with someone else's dads. Go ahead and start with Road to Perdition. In the winter of 1931 in Rock Island, Illinois, Michael Sullivan works as a mob enforcer for John Rooney. Rooney sends his son Connor to deal with a disgruntled bootlegger and sends Sullivan along as backup. Unfortunately, the meeting goes sideways when Connor loses his temper and there's a massacre. Connor and Sullivan walk away unscathed, however they notice a witness outside, Sullivan's 12-year-old son, Michael Jr. Senior assures Connor that the boy can keep his secret, and Connor leaves them. However, after his father pressures Connor to apologize, he instead sends Senior to an ambush at a speakeasy while going to silence the witness, but kills the wrong son and his mother while Junior's not home. Senior escapes the ambush and comes home to find Junior numb from finding their family murdered. Senior tells Junior to pack and they drive to Chicago, where Senior asks for help locating Connor from Rooney's business associate, Al Capone, and his gang. Capone's underboss, Frank Nitti, is sympathetic, but refuses as their business dealings with the Roonies are too lucrative, and suggests Sullivan forget it and come to work for Capone. Sullivan refuses and hatches another plan instead, make working with the Roonies unprofitable. Senior and Junior do so by robbing banks where Capone keeps dirty money, but only the dirty money. Senior's the robber, and Junior's the getaway driver. After a few instances of this, Capone hires an assassin to take care of the problem, but he proves unsuccessful. After a few more heists, Capone gives up the Roonies, and Senior takes his revenge. As Senior and Junior arrive at the house in perdition to finally settle down, the assassin is waiting in ambush, and fatally wounds Senior. Junior pulls a gun to retaliate, but can't bring himself to fire. However, this distracts the assassin, allowing Senior to get off a shot and save his son. Junior holds his father as he dies, and then leaves, heading to be adopted by an old farming couple they met while on the road. Meanwhile, 2012 gave us The Secret Service, written by Mark Miller, and co-plotted by Matthew Vaughn, who had gone to produce, write, direct the film. So, I get the sense that he was thinking of the film all along. The film, which came out in 2014, starts with a climatologist being kidnapped, then rescued, only for his rescuer to be kidnapped by Gazelle, a woman with swords for legs. Meanwhile, Eggsy is a loathsome shab. He goes down to the pub to get uh, away from his more loathsome stepdad. He and his mates nick a car, but he refuses to give them up their names when uh, questioned by the fuzz. He calls in his favor, and inherits from his dad, a spy who died in line of duty. His dad's co-worker, Izzy Galahad, springs him from jail and, after assessing his character, recruits him to the Kingsman, a secret group of gentlemen spies. They have an opening after their agent, Lancelot, was killed trying to rescue a climatologist. X doesn't fit in. The other recruits are upper-class wankers who look down on him. But his tenacity and loyalty and Galahad's tutelage make him a finalist. His final test is to shoot a dog. He refuses and the other finalist becomes Lancelot. While all this was going on, Galahad has been investigating the climatologist, as well as other kidnappings and disappearances. He discovers that Gazelle was working for a tech mogul, Valentine, who has given in to climate defeatism and plans to use his new cell phones to emit a signal that will drive everyone berserk. Eggsy watches helpless as Valentine shoots Galahad to shut him up. Eggsy, Lancelot, and another teammate, Merlin, sneak into Valentine's mountain base, where the kidnapped celebrities are hiding from the impending berserk signal. They manage to shut it down before the signal does too much damage and kill Valentine and Gazella process. Eggsy becomes the new Galahad and buys a new house for his mom to get her away from the abusive stepdad. So before we get too far into this, both of these plots have characters with similar names or who swap names out a lot. We'll try to keep things clear, but if we mess up, uh, sorry, but you probably should have watched the movies. They're both pretty good. That said, I will say that Road to Perdition is a pretty heavy movie, so 
if child death is something you don't want to deal with right now, I'm not going to blame you. I will say that it uses violence very sparingly. I wouldn't say, like, it's a dark film, but I wouldn't say dark and gritty. I would say dark and somber. Yeah, and that's a pretty good place to start our discussion. So, yeah, let's talk about the action in Rose Perdition, which is really effective. Very little of the violence actually happens on screen. There is, there's one or two shootouts. I think the big ones are the inciting incident at the bootlegger. There's a couple firefights between Sullivan and the assassin. The big one, though, is when the assassin ambushes him as he's trying to get checks from the Rooney's lawyer. And then there's the climactic fight at the end, where it's not terribly violent, but there's a lot of blood, more blood than the rest of the film. And even that setting incident is intercut with Michael Jr. seeing all this happening and looking horrified, and the, it cuts back and forth from the slow-mo shootout to his reactions that make it feel even more disjointed, but also keep it from being too graphic because, mm -hmm. you know, half of it is just off screen. Yeah. Honestly, mostly what you're seeing is feet and flashes of light. Mm -hmm. Oh, I did also forget the shootout that Sullivan Sr. has with John Rooney at the very end of the film. All right, where he just mows down a bunch of dudes. Yes. That said, most of the violence in this, because it's so muted, it makes it all feel really impactful. Mm -hmm. They don't overuse a lot of violence. They only punctuate it when necessary, which is a big change from the comic. And it honestly changes some of the characterization around because of it. Hmm. They play up Senior's role as uh, Rooney's enforcer a lot more in the comic. The names are slightly changed. Instead of Michael Sullivan, it's Michael O'Sullivan. And instead of John Rooney, it's John Looney. But they're basically the same characters. But in the comic, he's Looney's archangel of death. And they really play up how much of a big deal he is in the mob community and how effective he is. And there's a lot more scenes of violence. There's a few points in the film that are done diplomatically that are violent in the comic as well as some completely additional scenes in the comic that are violent. Like, at one point, Michael goes in disguise to Rooney's gambling fairy and does an arson and steals all the casino money while there. Huh. There's a lot more violence in the comic, and it changes the character of Michael Sullivan. There, like, it's very much, I was a soldier in World War I, being a soldier is the only job I know, is the only thing I'm good at. And it almost seems like he kind of revels in the violence and this revenge is sort of a holy justice thing for him. Whereas that's not the case in the film at all. I mean, for one, Michael Sullivan is played by Tom Hanks. He's America's dad. Yeah. Even when he's in darker films like this or Saving Private Ryan, he's still the dad character. Mm -hmm. So that softens him quite a bit, and it much more focuses on, rather, this revenge plot. It much more heavily focuses on his connection with his son and trying to make the best of it and trying to get justice. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the cast, we might as well get into that off the top. Uh, this has a lot of Hey, It's That Guy going on. Mm -hmm. We were watching the opening credits, and we are just going... Wait, Jude Law's in this? Tom Hanks in this? Stanley Tucci's in this? Daniel Craig is in this? Tyler Hecklin, who you all know from Teen Wolf, is in this? Or Supergirl. This is a really star-studded cast. This, weirdly enough for a comic film, became kind of Oscar bait. It's very prestige -y. Yeah, I mean, it did win an Oscar for cinematography. And it deserves it. Oh, yeah. 
listen, I'm not saying we should just switch to doing a, a video show instead of a radio show, but I want to talk about the cinematography for days, and you really can't do that on a podcast. It's really unfortunate that we're limited by the media. Just as you're listening to this, imagine like really nice slow cuts with really excellent lighting and perfect framing of, of characters and scenes. Honestly, you could probably listen to us talk about the film while it's going. There's not much dialogue. Mm-hmm. And while the dialogue is there, it's rarely necessary to understand what's going on. It just deepens your experience. Mm-hmm. Most of the dialogue that you need to have is just figuring out what character is angry at which character and which character is going where to kill someone else. And you can usually kind of figure that out retroactively once you've done so. Yeah. This film is masterful at visual storytelling. There's a lot of emotional weight tied behind very small things. Like there's one point where Michael Sr. is rushing back to the getaway car and he tells junior to hurry and you see junior look down and there's just like a couple drops of blood on senior's hand and so he realizes oh this is serious we need to go and that's all it's a really quick shot that is about as long as as michael jr would have to register that describing it is five times longer than it actually takes on screen and the cinematography also does a good job of externalizing characters' internal states. Mm-hmm. Right after Junior is found out about what his dad does, we see him sitting down at the dinner table, and the back wall takes up half the frame, and then his dad sits down in the seat next to him and takes up almost all the rest of the frame. So you have tiny baby Tyler Hecklin just trapped by the house and his dad, and it's really effective. I think one of my favorite shots of the film is towards the beginning where they're still kind of establishing characters and relationships and all that and you see the Sullivans at dinner and they're eating at a six-person table. Michael Sr. is at the head of the table on the left. His wife is opposite him on the right and then there's four chairs in between them, two on each side, and the boys are staggered. Peter on the far side further from the camera and Michael Jr. closer to the camera. But there's specifically a space left in between Michael Sr. and Michael Jr. showing this aloofness that's there between them and this distance between the entire family. But you're also still able to see everyone in that one shot while they're eating dinner. It's really well framed and choreographed. It's a lovely scene. And it sets up the core emotional arc for the Michaels, who have the kind of traditional assassin-father dynamic where the dad doesn't want the son to become like him, but it's necessary for him to become like him in order to survive in this cruel and gritty world. And ah, so tragic. And while I make light of it because it's kind of a common trope, it's still really well done here and it's still really emotionally evocative. And the tension of whether or not Junior will in fact kill the guy at the end is legitimately really like edgy or seedy. A lot of characterization in this is really, because there's so little dialogue, it has to be really efficient, and it is. My two thoughts are the younger brother, who gets just enough lines for me to kind of care about him as a character before he dies, and it's horrible. Same with the bouncer, who we meet at one point. He gets just enough lines as he's escorting Senior to meet his boss for us to go, Oh, this guy seems cool. I hope he makes it out okay. Spoiler, he does not make it out okay. I will say that because of the minimalist dialogue in the film, we do lose out on some really great lines from the comic. I'm going to share a couple of my favorites here. So in the comic, when Senior is telling Junior to wait in the car while they're in Chicago, while he goes to meet up with Capone's uh, underboss, Nettie, he's telling him, if there's any trouble, go to the first church that's not inside the Chicago, run if you see anyone with a gun, and 
Junior asks, well, what about police officers? And Senior responds, there are no police in Chicago, just killers in blue uniforms. Ooh. A, that's a really good line. B, that's also relevant in the modern day. And I'm like, oh, it's really good. Two other ones. There's a scene in the comic where they're kind of resting for the night and they've got all this cash. And Junior's is asking, Papa, are we rich? And Senior responds, no, we're not. Junior's like, but we have all this money. And from Senior, without your mother and brother, there can never be true prosperity. Dang. One last one to close it out so we can move on. As Senior is taking his revenge on Connor, he remarks to him, I should take my time killing you, but I can't bear your company. Oh, oh, that's amazing. I want to use that someday. Yeah, they're all really, really great lines. I'm sorry that they didn't make it into the end film. Again, I think most of the reason why is it because it changes the characterization of Michael Sr. quite a bit. The character that we have in the film probably wouldn't say any of those lines, mm-hmm. but it's really good dialogue. Mm-hmm. That's all dialogue from someone who seems to be kind of enjoying what he does, which... Um, and much more cynical. Yeah, and Michael here does out of necessity. Mm-hmm. That said, the line about uh, the richness brings up one of the few moments of pure levity in the film. During the robbery montage, we cut to Junior saying, So when do I get my share of the money? And his dad going, Well, how much do you want? $200. Okay, deal. And a little time passes and Junior realizes, Can I have had more? You'll never know. (laughs) It's very pure. It seems like that really softened this film from its comic counterpart and really refocused it on this father-son dynamic. But it also does a really good job of establishing how very innocent this kid is. You should know how much money is worth if you're going to be stealing it, and he doesn't. And it makes you really aware of the risk of this innocence lost thing. Mm-hmm. That said, it's part of the building relationship between the Michaels, but there's a bit kind of towards the end where they're talking about what subjects do you like, did you like, in school. And you realize that despite all this they've been through, you know, being on the road and stealing from banks all this time, it feels like this conversation is happening at the wrong point in the narrative. Mm -hmm. And it's not like the conversation is bad, but it just feels a little bit like it was from an earlier draft and got moved around. And I think in general, one of the bigger problems with the film is the middle portion of the film drags quite a bit. In between the death of their family and the start of the bank robbing plot, there's a lot that I think could have been streamlined and made better. Something like that probably could have gone into that section to maybe speed things along. Yeah. And none of it's bad. It's just that, you know, we don't need all of it, per mm-hmm. se. That said, that also gives you the really fun plot cul-de-sac with the assassin, which, while it doesn't really go anywhere to the end of the film, is still really fun because Jude Law is this not-quite-right assassin is really interesting to watch like they play off each other in this really interesting way and it's hard to express why but watching them play cat and mouse is interesting one of the things that's interesting about that character is that along with being an assassin he is also a crime scene photographer and he also specifically photographs his own crime scenes the way the movie frames it it seems almost like a fetish to him which ups the creep factor weird thing is that character is not in the comics at all 
Huh. There is a character who kills Michael Sullivan at the end of the comic, but it's just some guy from Capone's gang. There, There's no history between them. Hmm. I think it works better here. Like This guy is doing this because Senior got away and wounded him while doing so, instead of because he's actually getting paid for it, is really interesting and kind of plays into the character's characterization. Mm-hmm. I like a lot of the Catholicness of this because the characters are mostly people from the Irish mob. There's a lot of like Irish Catholicness going on, so you have pleasant Catholic guilt underlying all of this, which gives the characters a bit more depth and complexity. That's played up even more in the comic. It's actually toned down quite a bit here. In the oh film. wow, this is this is a, a film where like a character literally says, "None of us will see heaven." Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason it was toned down in the film is because they didn't include the nickname of Archangel of Death. Mm, sure. Get, get into that, all that, because there's a lot of playing off that nickname that happens in the comic. Ooh, interesting. We've kind of been showering this with praise so far. Let's go ahead and switch over to talking about Kingsman. Sure. So, like I said, this was written by Mark Miller and plotted by Matthew Vaughn, who would go on to be a filmmaker and i'm really interested in it because i think this film is the best version of the comic reading the comic made me like the film more because i don't like a lot of the characters in the comic who i like in the film the plot is more or less the same broadly but there are all these subtleties about the importance of loyalty and caring about people that aren't in the comic as much Exit doesn't have that critical moment where he refuses to give up his friends and that's what impresses Galahad and makes him think he's Kingsman material. In the comic, the Galahad equivalent is just his uncle who feels bad for not having gotten him out of poverty, which is bad because poverty is bad and people who are in poverty are bad and should feel bad about it because it's their fault. That's one of the very interesting things about this film is it tackles the classism that's kind of inherent to the gentleman spy trope, and it does it in a very interesting, not heavy-handed way, and it doesn't villainize those in poverty. There are people in poverty who are absolute shitty people, but it's not because you are in poverty you are a shitty person. There's that really good line. Eggsy is saying that he can't be a gentleman because he, he grew up poor, and Galahad is saying... Being a gentleman has nothing to do with one's accent. It's about being at ease in one's own skin. As Hemingway said, there is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. Which is a pretty solid message. I'm not saying this film is perfect about class issues, but it's doing a bit to unpack it in ways that I think are not awful. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not going to lie. That line reminded me a little bit of Blast from the Past. The short and simple definition of a lady or a gentleman is someone who always tries to make sure that the people around him or her are as comfortable as possible. And that plays into the villain, too. There's a really interesting thing that's kind of easy to miss. I've only picked it up because I've seen this movie a lot, where they have the same shot for the villain giving his monologue as they have for a like hate speech preacher in the Deep South earlier in the film. And during that speech, he talks about this kind of rich people should survive the apocalypse because we're rich thing going on. And it's interesting that the villain thinks that class should matter when really capitalism is the reason that climate change is a problem. I like that. It was good, subtle framing to push mm-hmm. that point. Although, while we're talking about the hate preacher from earlier in the film, he's around for a while. He's kind of like background noise while Galahad is gathering information about what exactly is going to be happening at the church. And they cut back and forth to him. But at one point, they cut to him and he drops a couple slurs. And it just feels incredibly unnecessary and mostly there for shock value. And it felt real cheap. Yeah. And I mean... 
I get it, people like that exist, but we don't necessarily have to go all the way with that. We already got what he was about. Yeah, we understood exactly what this type of person is. We didn't need to start tossing out slurs. Yeah, and it does, in fact, break my Esther rule where you have to have at least one more gay kiss and you use a particular slur in a film. And this movie does not. Despite the weird vibes from Galahad, so Galahad is played by Colin Firth, who also played a sad gay man in A Single Man. The characters dress and act the same way down to the glasses and so I feel like Colin was kind of channeling that character a little bit even just accidentally and so there's this weird subtle queer vibe to him oh and there's also that bit where Galahad is explicitly saying that he's going to Pygmalion Eggsy and Eggsy has no idea what that is so uh, Galahad lists a few different versions of that plot and then eventually Eggsy goes oh like in My Fair Lady it wasn't really like a father-son thing in My Fair Lady. It was it was like a, a dude and a lady, and there's some like romantic subtext there. So if you want to just pitch that into the queer coding there, just I'll just let that slide across the rim. I mean, Galahad also mentioned Pretty Woman. That too, yeah. There's a lot of sort of subtle queer vibes going on. There's also a scene where they're down to the final three candidates for the open position in, in The Kingsman. And there's the pretentious upper crust rich boy. There's Eggsy. And then there is another upper class person, but she's a woman named Roxy. And at one point, they're all given the task of seducing a person in a nightclub the rich douchebag reveals his photo then Eggsy reveals his photo and it's the same person and I just turn to Jackson like it's gonna be the same girl for Roxy isn't it and it is mm. it's actually a ruse they get drugged and do a loyalty test instead to kind of avoid that icky pickup artisty thing which I appreciate but I also appreciate that it's totally fine for a woman to be trying to seduce another woman there is some weirdness of this Almia leadership team encouraging girl-on-girl action. Gonna say a little creepy, but it doesn't read that way in the film. A part of it is that all the kings are training to be gentleman spies, and part of being a gentleman spy is seducing ladies for information. They're open-minded enough to realize that you don't have to be a man to be a gentleman spy, which I kind of like. It's also toned down a lot from kind of a similar scene in the comic where it's not a test. They're just here go out into this rich person club and do seductions. You get points for the amount of bases you run. Like There's like an actual point value thing. And that's it. They just do the thing. Part of spy training is explicitly how to fly planes, do stunts in any kind of car, and bring a woman to orgasm every time. <laughs> it's it's a bit gross. I get what they're going for. I get the humor of it. But there's really a Roxy equivalence in the comic. There's a lot of menfolk menfolking. I will say this, at least they are encouraging those men to have the woman achieve orgasm. That's true. And while the film does have Roxy, that's not to say that it uses its female characters terribly well. That's true. Roxy, after she becomes Lancelot and takes that spot over Eggsy, she does help out in the final climax trying to stop Valentine. She... She has to get over her fear of heights and do something scary to sort of follow the bad guy, but not all the way follow the bad guy, because I guess this is The Sorcerer's Apprentice from 2009 or whatever. And I like that they did that, but then after that's over, she doesn't have anything to do and is just kind of left by the wayside. Right. It'd be cool if she was also in the mountain base fighting dudes. Yeah. There's also... Their very first test, while they're sleeping, their bunk room is filled with water, and they have to escape. And at the end of it, you know, good job for doing this, good job for doing that. Because as far as I'm concerned, every single one of you has failed. Merlin, the one who's conducting all the tests, points to 
one of the candidates who they left behind and has drowned in the room. I believe her name's Amelia. Later you find out that Amelia was just a plant to try and get them to think it's all really serious. Remember Amelia, she didn't drown. She works in our tech department in Berlin, she's fine. But that didn't need to be a woman? Right, because she was only one of two women candidates. Mm -hmm. It could have been any of the, like, Cambridge douchebags. Honestly, it probably would have been more useful to have a Cambridge-esque douchebag die because it feels more personal because, oh, he was just like me. Right. I will say that, for the most part, I like Gazelle. I think Gazelle is pretty well handled. There is this weird thing where on one hand, yay, we get a badass person who is, happens to be disabled. She's a double amputee below the knee on both legs. But her legs are swords. I can't like not mention that because it's that kind of movie and it's like swords for legs is a character trait. And that kind of comes from this tradition of like Bond villains having those weird disabilities turned into superpowers like uh, Jaws mm. from the Bond films. But there's also, she's a woman and a person of color, and disabled, and feels kind of like they're tripling up on minorities to cram them all in. It is hashtag not great that the only two prominent people of color in this film are the villains. Yeah, they could yeah. have easily had one of the candidates be black or Indian or something. Mm -hmm. Or had Galahad or someone, anyone really. I can kind of understand like none of the current Kingsmen being that way, considering Arthur's stance towards class and snootiness, and Galahad specifically calls it on towards the beginning of the film. Right. I don't want to get too far away from Gazelle, but I do want to bring up a thing. I didn't mention in my summary, Arthur is the leader of the Kingsmen, that's his title. Anyway, going back to Gazelle. Gazelle is kind of weird to me. Like, for one, like, I love Sophia Bahela, so I'm glad to see her here. Mm -hmm. And she's clearly having a lot of fun. Gazelle as a character is clearly having a lot of fun. But there's a, a Gazelle in the comic. But it's just, like, a dude. He's a former Kingsman who lost legs and put swords there. He doesn't like being called Gazelle. He's working for the bad guy, and the bad guy calls him Gazelle, and he repeatedly says, hey, can you not call me that? It's actually kind of insulting to be reduced to just my disability. And there's also a guy who's just called Cyclops because he lost an eye. I do not have enough knowledge about disability studies things to know how to like unpack any of that. That was an interesting thing for the character to comment on, but I mean, he still dies and gets his other limbs chopped off, so good job, comic. And I will say that we get some great fight scenes out of Sophia Batella and her sword legs. Mm -hmm. There's that. So Road to Perdition had, like, subtlety and explored violence in a complicated, nuanced way. Uh, Kingsman does not do that. Oh, yeah. Complete, utter whiplash between these two films. We're probably going to have a lot of segments where we talk about, like, the ultra-violence in comic book movies. This is kind of the first real one where we really get into it. Let's see. There's this scene in the church after they turn on the berserk signal to test it, and everyone in the church murders each other. They're stabbing each other with knives. Galahad is also under those effects and is shooting people. Using like, his tech gadgets, using bits of wood. Yeah, people, like, are breaking apart the pews and, like, impaling people. It gets pretty gory and graphic. On the one hand, if you're here for, like, ludicrous ultraviolence, I get it. I think this is a good example of that. I don't know how I feel about the ethics of ludicrous ultraviolence ultra and the way we fetishize violence in things, and especially the idea that it's okay to experience this violence because this is a function of the Westboro Baptist Church, and the catharsis of that is a thing that some people might enjoy. I'm morally conflicted about all that, but ethics aside, it is very well filmed and very like yeah. impressive choreography. Yeah. And you also get that in a few other fight scenes, like the you know, all of the stuff at the end and in the beginning when Galahad beats up a bunch of bullies for Eggsy. 
Mm-hmm. There's some places where it's better than others or like more ridiculous than others. So all the people who are being saved from the berserk radio signal have little implants to protect them from the signal. But Valentine has also effectively rigged them with bombs. And at one point they're all activated. So you just have this montage scene where everyone who was working with Valentine has having their heads explode in like fireworks-esque displays. Mm-hmm. Things like that where it's just completely ridiculous I'm okay with, but how visceral it is in that church scene is a little tough to handle, especially since most of the time when films are doing that sort of ultra-violence, it's going up against masked minions and mooks. Perfect example in Samurai Jack, everything's a robot. Right. So you don't have to feel bad. And here, these are all humans and you you see blood and it's, they are kind of like a step or two away from rage zombies, which I feel weird about the violence sometimes in the film. Yeah. Admittedly, Galahad, who we we agree with and sympathize with because he's Colin Firth, is also horrified by this. What did you do to me? I had no control. I killed all those people. I wanted to. So, and I think the film might have been trying to comment on that, but I don't think it's doing so successfully, if so. Yeah, especially considering the violence everywhere else. Right. Also, for a movie that has all these gorgeously choreographed fight scenes and they're very well filmed and whatnot, some of the effects budget for the explosions just (laughs) seems like they were like paying pennies on the dollar. Yeah, I mean, put your money where it counts, I guess. Yeah. The fireworks scene, that's totally fine. But there's a couple of other explosions where you could see where the guy just kind of stopped with the Photoshop brushes. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess it could be a woman. No, I'm going to say a guy. A guy got lazy. (laughs) Sure. One thing that makes me laugh about this in the comics, instead of having a villain be Samuel L. Jackson, this kind of weird, quirky, don't know how to classify this character, the comics equivalent is this rich, young tech dude who's kidnapping celebrities from his favorite TV shows. The initial scene is he's kidnapped actually Mark Hamill and trying to get him to like agree with him about the prequels. Mark Hamill is like, I don't really care. And so it was great that they actually got like Mark Hamill himself to play the climatologist who gets kidnapped at the start of the film. That was a nice touch. That is really nice. It also leads to, at the end, they free all the prisoners. And so you have Pierce Brosnan and Patrick Stewart with guns taking out some spy mooks. <laughs> Excellent. Right. That was fun. <laughs> Although, back to the character of Valentine in the film a little bit, portrayed by Samuel L. Jackson. He's this billionaire tech mogul, but he he very much does not fit in with the upper class gentlemanliness that the Kingsman espouse. At one point when Galahad is going to infiltrate his mansion and get information on what's going on for this fancy dinner, he serves him McDonald's. Literally serves McDonald's on a silver platter. Which, relatable. (laughs) Man, I want a cheeseburger right now. There's also this weird lisp that Samuel Jackson brings to the character. I'm not sure if it's tried to move this character to be a little bit more effeminate and do that in addition to Valentine also having this visceral reaction to seeing blood. He can't stand it. He vomits. Mm-hmm. There's a long tradition in action movies of having like the sissy villain. So I don't know if that's like part of a queer coding. Is that weird stereotype of queer people having a speech impediment? They said queerly with their mild speech impediments. But on the other hand, a lot of times it also just sounds like it's Samuel Jackson impersonating Mike Tyson. It's very hard for someone to call Mike Tyson a sissy. (laughs) 
I don't quite know what's going on with that. I don't think it was necessary for the character, and there's already so much other stuff going on. It's kind of just distracting. Mm. So, as I mentioned, um, I, I've seen this movie a fair few times. I, I kind of like it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a big, goofy action flick. Terry and I turned his shirtless quite a bit. That's, that helps. But watching it for the first time being critical with it, I started noticing like some of the more of the flaws. Like The pacing isn't great. The plot is a little bit messy. There's too much happening with Eggsy's training and also the evil plot going on at the same time. They kind of bounce back and forth, and both are interesting, but they're not connected very well. And because they feel disconnected, it makes it feel like a disjointed film. You can't really get engrossed in one, because every time you're about to, it cuts to the other plot. Right. But on the flip side, there's a, a great bit where Galahad's talking about various things he's done, and one of them is saving Margaret Thatcher from an assassination, and uh, you were like, why? Why would you do that? And then the film has Eggie saying, not everybody would thank you for that one. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> this film and the comic is based on are quite British in a lot of ways, and that's part of why I like it. It feels like a lost Edgar Wright film. It does, and I do appreciate it for that. I could definitely see Hot Fuzz like slipping into the same universe. Yeah, or I could see Eggsy teaming up with the people from Attack the Block. Wow. Wow, I didn't realize I needed that, but wow. <laughs> the message doesn't bother me too much because the film is kind of just going hard bonker and doesn't really seem to care, which also results in like unfortunate stuff with like the villains being all people of color, etc., it's the kind of thing where if you analyze it too thoroughly, you're going to take, take all the fun out of it. And we need to unpack how we interact with fun things and allowing them to be problematic because they're fun. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the funness of it lets it get away with some stuff. And like how things that are being tongue-in-cheek with some of these like problematic aspects, how well that's handled and whether you can get away with being tongue-in-cheek and having that thing in, but pointing it out and having some meta-commentary on that. While we're on the subject of problematic stuff there's a lot of people threatening to shoot dogs in this film and i don't know why it's here <laughs> there's one point at the beginning of their training they're all given a dog to take care of and and train along with themselves and eggsy chooses a small pug mistaking it for a bulldog you know they're all you know doing the whole uh, they're running with all the heavy gear trying to you know get into shape and his pug is kind of holding him back and he's like threatens to shoot the dog with the rifle that he's carrying and it, it's really jarring to have that character do that especially since we're supposed to be connecting emotionally with this character he doesn't he just kind of picks the pug up and sh uh, shoves it in his bulletproof vest and keeps running that part of the scene is adorable but then again to finish their training they are given a gun and told to shoot their dog afterwards they find out that there's a blank in there but it's still the sh secretive organization that is asking these people to shoot a dog that they've raised from a puppy and have bonded with over months for no reason they, they talk about the only time you put someone else's in danger is if it will save someone else and you have to weigh those odds and whatnot but there's no odds to weigh it's just shoot the dog or you don't get to be part of our cool secret spy club and it boggles my mind how no one thought this would completely screw up our ability to emotionally bond with the characters and with this organization eggsy declines to do it because he's a good person <laughs> And then leaves, and then gets called out and shouted at by Galahad. You throw away your biggest opportunity over a fucking dog. It completely 
made me lose all faith in the Kingsman organizations. No, Exit, you're better off. Just get rid of these fucks. Start your own agency. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're right. However, and that's not in the comics. The dog thing isn't there. Of course not. Because the comics are more into, like, the Star Treks, the Star Wars, the Red Dwarfs of the world. Whereas this film is more into, like, classic film stuff. Less nerd culture, more film nerd culture. Mm-hmm. So the dog thing, I'm pretty sure, is an obscure reference to a British werewolf movie from the early 2000s called Dog Soldiers, where basically the same thing happens. The main character is training to be a spy, and is like, here, shoot the dog, and he doesn't. And I am all for referencing Dog Soldiers, and if you want to see how much I care about Dog Soldiers, uh, you can listen to me pitching Dog Soldiers 2 on the Equalizers. I get what they're going for. However, no one's seen Dog Soldiers, Matthew Vaughn. No one knows what this is. I've seen Dog Soldiers. I didn't get the reference. It's that subtle. It's not good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that doesn't invalidate any of your points. That it still makes me not like the Kingsman, even if they do reference movies that aren't that good. There's a lot to talk about with, with Kingsman. Like, we've barely scratched the surface, and I could probably talk about this for ages, but I don't think we're going to because I think I'm going to be voting for Road to Perdition instead. I agree with you. I don't dislike Kingsman. I had a lot of fun with the film. I did have to kind of put out of my mind for this review some of the stuff that happens in The Golden Circle. It also, like, there's a third Kingsman film coming out, I believe, later this year. Yep. Honestly, and I, I might catch up with two and go see that. I enjoyed this film that much, but it's really hard to compare to Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition is phenomenal from a cinematography perspective and i'm the kind of nerd who's really into that sort of framing and lighting and all that sort of stuff road to perdition's like exactly my sort of jam for that stuff it's a little prestige and stuff like that so i get it's not everyone's cup of tea but it's a fantastic movie and i'm voting for it to move forward so that means that Road to Perdition will make it to the next stop on his journey, and Kingsman will unfortunately have to um, shoot its own dog. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so what's up next week? Next week, we are shifting gears quite a bit, and instead of focusing on comic books, we're going to be focusing on comic strips. We have 1990s Dick Tracy, as well as 1993's Dennis the Menace. Oh, gods, what? If you want to make sure to catch all of our episodes, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, Spotify, whatever floats your boat. This has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thank you all for listening.